Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, which means we're going to bring you another episode on systematic theology. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, today we're in week number four in our systematic theology series. And so this starts a new module. Every three weeks is a new module, you know, four total modules, three lessons each to make up 12 different weeks in our SysTheo at PursueGod.org. Now, in module one, we talked about God, and we're naming this module God and Man. And so today, obviously, if we want to talk about God and Man, the most natural place to start is with Jesus. And so today we're going to talk all about Jesus. Yeah, so we're kind of transitioning from God, you know, the nature of God to the nature of human beings, and Jesus is both. And so really, we're going to understand a lot about him today and but it, it sort of paves the way for us later to talk about what human beings are like and how God created us and etc now so today we, we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus we're going to talk about the deity of Jesus we're going to talk about this kind of this this dual nature so that we can really try to understand these two natures we're also going to talk about something called the offices of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So people listening, this will. There's just a lot of lot of ground to cover here. There's a lot of richness. Obviously, we're also going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, mm-hmm. and then we're we're going to talk about the ascension of, ascension of Jesus. So at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about his work, but right. at the beginning, we're going to talk about his nature, right? So his person right. and his work is what we're going to be covering today. And you know, in our pursuit series, in lesson number five, we talked there about sort of the five early teachings, the five teachings of the early church on Jesus. We, we took that from Acts chapter 10, so I encourage people to go read Acts chapter 10 if you want to see how Peter taught about Jesus and his person and his work. But in today's lesson, we're going to take kind of a deeper dive, and we're going to talk about this from a theological point of view. Yeah, by the way, that's a great illustration of the difference between what people call biblical theology and systematic theology. Right. right. So biblical theology, you look at Acts chapter 10 and you see, here's all the things that that passage says, you draw them out, but now we're lo- doing it a systematic theology approach to say, let's look at the big picture and try to connect all the dots throughout all of Scripture. Okay, so let's let's start with the humanity of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully human in body, soul, mind, and will. So explain this to someone, especially someone coming from a non-biblical background. What in the world is that about? Jesus was fully human? Well, I think most people who consider Jesus from a historical point of view would, would, be, they would take it as a given that Jesus was human. Um, maybe they would think that he's only human, which we'll talk about his deity in a minute, but when you consider his deity, and you take his deity seriously, that he really is God, and uniquely God, not just some kind of became a God or something like that, then, then the, the question you have to wrestle with, well, what is the meaning of his humanity then? Is he, in what ways is he really like us? In what ways is his humanity real? Um, if he's really God, then is his humanity... The church, early church grappled with these questions. Did he only appear to be human? Um, was his humanity somehow subordinate to his deity? Um, you know, in other words, was it really real? And so we're saying, from that point of view, Jesus, his humanity is totally real. Um, that everything that it means to be human, if you look at humanity in the original creation, then Jesus is the epitome of everything that God created human beings to originally be. 
Okay, so let's talk about some of those limitations. So, Ross, what you're saying is that Jesus experienced the limitations, the regular, ordinary limitations of being truly human, right? So that means, let's make a list here. He was subject to being tired. Yeah, he got tired. He fell asleep in the boat in one story in the middle of a storm. He must have been really tired. Yeah, he got hungry. Right. He got thirsty. Yep, we see examples of that on the cross. He was thirsty, for example. Yeah, he experienced emotions like a human being does. Yeah. Sorrow, anger, joy, uh, typical emotions that are nat- native to kind of human life. Yeah. He was tempted like we're tempted, but there's a difference, right? right? Not in the temptation, but in what happened after the temptation. Right. He, this, is where, this is why I made the point that Jesus is fully everything that epitomizes everything that original humanity was created before the fall. Before humanity, when Adam and Eve were tempted, and they chose to follow the temptation and walk away from God. Jesus has never walked away from God. He's never um, disobeyed God. He's never gone his own way instead of God's way. So he's never, he's never sinned. And that's the, the difference between his experience and ours. Um, but our sin, our sin nature is not inherent in the initial creation that God made human beings without a sinful nature. And so that's why Jesus manifests that original glory of humanity. All right, so back to our ordinary experiences. This is interesting. Jesus was born just like any human was born. Right, he didn't just show up. He didn't like ascend down from heaven. He didn't just like suddenly walk on the scene. Um, and it was born with all the all the blood and guts of a normal human birth, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He grew, right? So he, w- he went from infant to toddler mm-hmm. to preschooler to, you know, yeah, yeah. middle s- grade schooler to middle of, schooler. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. He developed. He suffered. He actually suffered. This is important, right, that he actually suffered. He didn't just, he didn't just pretend like he suffered on the cross. Yeah, he didn't just appear to suffer, um, but, but it was real. And it, it cost him personally, yeah. And then, of course, he actually died. Right. He physically died. It didn't, it wasn't, he didn't faint. He didn't look like he was dead. He, right. he died like that any his, human being would die. Right. His soul, his spirit was separated from his body, and, and his physical body actually stopped functioning. Yeah. And then, of course, we know that's not the end of the story. Then he was resurrected in a human body yeah. on the third day. And this is interesting, Ross. Speak to this for just a second. And he permanently possesses his human nature. What do you mean by that? Right. It means so. In the, we call the we call it the incarnation, when the eternal God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became embodied. So he didn't have a body before he was born in as Jesus in this world. It, technically, you wouldn't say he was Jesus before he was born right. into a Jewish family in in Palestine. And so he was, he's God the Son. And he was embodied at that time, and um, he was resurrected in that body, a glorified version of it, we'll talk about later. But he continues to be embodied, um, unlike the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he continues to have the human aspect of his nature. He didn't just take it on like a suit of clothes and then shed it you know, when he got to heaven and revert to his original form of glory, but he remains permanently um, embodied, and he remains permanently both divine and human from here on out. 
Now, I'm sure that some people are going to have to rewind this and go listen, because that was a lot of ground we covered real quick. And again, if you want if you want to see the scripture references that goes along with everything we just talked about, you can find this in Lesson 4 in our Systematic Theology series online, pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo. But Ross, what I want to do before we move on from his humanities, I want to talk about why it matters. Okay, so we, we've got the details of it. Again, super interesting. A lot of people probably haven't even thought about this, mm-hmm. what it means that Jesus was, was human, fully human. But why does it matter? Who cares if he right. was human? It, is, it really it matters a ton. It matters a lot. Because uh, for one thing, for, him to be, for Jesus to be able to offer a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf... He had to really legitimately be one of us. To use an analogy from, from modern uh, law, um, if you file a class action lawsuit, you have to be a member of the class. You, know, you have to be a person who is affected by whatever that thing you're suing over. And so Jesus really can offer us a, a sacrifice on our behalf as our representative because, he, because he's one of us. He's a human being coming to God as a human being, but also, as we'll see, coming to God as, as divine as well. Okay, so it matters for our salvation. Yeah. I think also it matters for us, I guess we could say, emotionally. Yeah, it right? matters for our encouragement and our support, yeah. right? Yeah. Because he was, um, as, as human, and we just talked about he was hungry, he was tired, he was tempted, he suffered. All the things that we go through in human life we know he can sympathize with us. He understands our weakness. He understands what temptations we're going through. And so um, Hebrews chapter 4 invites us to come to him exactly on that basis, that he's our great high priest, that he, because he lived our life in this world, then you know, he can totally empathize and sympathize with the things that we go through. And then we can extend that into the next reason it matters. It's it's because Jesus, as, as fully human Jesus, he manifests the true nature of humanity, what, what God had in mind for human beings all along. Yeah, all, all we've ever seen is human beings who are broken and um, in, you know, far from God, and, and, and yeah, we're being redeemed and restored through Christ, those who follow him, but, but Jesus shows us, you know, this is what God had in mind. You know, this is the, this is the original intent of the Creator, um, now it's embodied in him. Yeah, which means he, he can be our example, right? That mm-hmm. we can look to Jesus, we can read some of the stories in the Gospels, like, for example, how Jesus prayed, how Jesus fasted, mm-hmm. how Jesus did relationships. Jesus is a, an example for us about what it means to live this, this rich and satisfying life that he came yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. Us. Pursuing relationship with the Father, and even... Uh, this is an interesting thing when you think about the deity and the humanity of Jesus. He didn't come like fully armed with all of his divine, you know, power pack or whatever to be fully, really human. He had to trust God. He 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 did miracles. It says in Matthew, he says, "If I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, then whom you know so." So can you. So in other words, he didn't just cast out demons or do miracles simply because he was God, but he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. That's the same thing that we have available to us. And so there's a lot of great... We can look at, say, oh, 
there, Jesus um, is an example for, well, I'll never be God. Um, I'll never, you know, be, have that two natures, but there's still a great deal that we can look to Jesus and say, oh, this is really what life is about. This is really how to live in relationship with God. Now, this next one's a little bit theological, so help us understand this, Ross. It, the, the humanity of Christ also shows us that the material world isn't an evil thing. It's not a bad thing. It kind of shows us the relationship between the physical and the spiritual realms. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, this is probably a little foreign for our culture today, but I'll give you an ancient example and a contemporary example from another part of the world. So an ancient example... The, um, the group of people called the Gnostics, their idea was that the material world really is evil, and God could not have created it. So there must be a higher God than our God, who someone, a lower God created the world. And so their approach to life was twofold. One, super asceticism, say totally deny all of the physical stuff because it's bad, the physical world is bad, or they would have go totally off the deep end and do anything they wanted, say, well, the physical world doesn't matter, so we can you know, eat and have sex and do whatever we want to, it doesn't really matter. Well, this says, that the incarnation of Jesus says that the physical world is good, that God created it good. Now, the contemporary example is from Asian religions, which believe that, like Hinduism, believes that everything that you see in the physical world is just an illusion, and it's keeping us from understanding our unity with the divine, quote-unquote, with this, with this oversoul, and, and so we want to try to escape from the illusion of, of, the, of the reality of the world around us. And again, it leads to asceticism and other things. But no, bi- the biblical framework that's demonstrated in Jesus is that this world is good. God, God created this world. God invested in this world. Jesus himself, the Son of God, came and lived in this world, kind of giving a, a blessing and um, approval to the material world. Yeah, and we can, we can even give one more example of a lot of Christians today um, maybe misunderstand even what heaven's going to be like, thinking it's just going to be disembodied spirits floating around. But like we already said, Jesus has a body, right? His, his resurrected body, and, and the Bible says that we too will have resurrected bodies. In other words, that heaven is, an, is not just a spiritual realm, heaven is actually a physical realm as well. Yeah, and there's other implications too that we could explore about why do we why do Christians uh, want to take care of the world that we live in, mm. the environment environment that we live in? Because God said it was good, and Jesus said it was good. Yeah. All right. One more thing about why the humanity of Jesus matters. While God is transcendent, He's not infinitely far removed from the human race. It's kind of that that watchmaker idea, right? Yeah. God. Yeah. God didn't just wind it up and leave. But Jesus, you remember how when uh, the angel appears to Mary or to Joseph, he says his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. So God has come in with, with skin on, so to speak, to make himself known. That God, it shows God does act in the human realm. God is I- involved. He's not just some distant uh, God hiding out there in some corner of the universe. Okay, so that's the humanity of Jesus. And we, we probably could have started with this next thing, the divinity of Jesus, because before Jesus took on human form, Jesus, all well, you said it already, Jesus, maybe you wouldn't have called him Jesus, but the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, always existed. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus didn't give up 
his godhood, and yet he took fully took on humanity. Help us understand that. Right. It, it is a it's a hard thing to understand how um, he could be fully God, but also limited by by human nature. But um, so Philippians chapter two says that he that he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. And so there's been a debate historically of what that, what that means. How much did Jesus give up? Did he give up his deity at all? And, and the Bible would tell us, no, he did not stop being God. Now, he may have given up, to some extent, the independent use of his divine attributes. That's what I was referring to earlier, how he did things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't, he didn't just go, boom, I'm God, zap, you know. Um, but, but he didn't stop being God. Now, his deity was veiled in his humanity, but it, it popped out once in a while. It, was, it revealed once in a while in his wisdom, in his, in his powerful uh, mastery of creation and, and ma- miracles like calming the waves and so forth. Um, so it was not always obvious or visible, but he never stopped being the second person of the Trinity, equal to and identical with, identified with, with God in the same way we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so again, he's not kind of God. He's not JV God. He's not almost like God the Father. When we say God, a lot of times, I think, at least for me, a lot of times I think of God the Father. Yeah, that's kind of default yeah. thought, yeah. But but really, the word God includes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's a good reminder. And so some examples of this is Jesus identified himself with God. The mm-hmm. same God of the Old Testament, the God who appeared to Moses in Exodus three fourteen. Remember in the in the burning bush, and where, where where Moses said, "Hey, if you want me to go to Pharaoh, what should I? What who should I say sent me?" And and God identified Himself as I am, I am, just mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. Right? And then Jesus actually references that in John eight. Yeah, he's having a debate with uh, some of the religious leaders, and um, he's kind of calling them out on their attitude toward him. And he's establishing his identity. He, he says uh, he, his argument is, you know, you're you're not actually really children of God because you, if you were, you would show a different attitude, a different life, and so forth. Um, and they said, no, no, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, wait a sec, wait, I I knew Abraham longed to see my day. So they say, what? You, you're you're saying you're as old as Abraham? And Jesus then trumps that, and he says, before Abraham even was, I am. And he, he, didn't, he didn't say, I was, or I existed. He used a particular phrase that's a direct quotation from what God said to Moses. And we know that that's what he meant, because everyone understood it. They picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to uh, punish him for, for blasphemy, which, if he wasn't really God, it would have been blasphemy. Or if he didn't mean to say it like that, he would have corrected them. Right, he would have, he said, would have said, "Oh, sorry, boys, <laughs> put <laughs> the rocks down." Yeah, I used that. You used. I used it. The I used the wrong word there. Yeah. I, I think you I, you misunderstood me. I'm not claiming to be God, but he did. But he claim was. To be God. He was yeah. claiming to be God. He defended his own equality in union with the Father in John ten ten. Similar scenario. He mm-hmm. says simply, "I and the Father are, are one." Yeah. And again, the, their response was blasphemy, and he could have corrected that, but he didn't. And then interestingly in Revelation, Revelation 1.8 calls God the Father, Alpha, and Omega. And then later in Revelation, in Revelation 22, Jesus applies that same title to himself. Yeah, you see at the very beginning, then you see at the end, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, okay, what is that supposed to mean? If God the Father is Alpha and Omega, then how can Jesus use that title? 
he must he must be implying that there's a unity there. So Jesus Jesus thought he was God. The New Testament writers thought he was God. There are many examples of that yeah. uh, that yeah. you can look up. Philippians two, Hebrews one, many more, and then. Hebrews 1 quotes Psalm 45. Explain what's going on there in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9. Yeah, in Psalm 45, it quotes, um, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, um, you are God. And it, and it quotes that with respect to Jesus. And so basically in the psalm, um, it's identifying the person to whom the psalm is expressed as being divine. And it says, well, look, this is really about Jesus. And in that same passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, there's a lot there about it. It says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And then later on, it says that he deserves the worship of the angels. And so there's a, like a, a number of points of connection there that all point to the deity of Jesus. Okay, so those are some direct claims, either by Jesus or by his followers, that Jesus is fully God. But the Bible also attributes to Jesus some works that only God can do. So, so this is an even further evidence that God acts like God. He does right. things that are only things that, I guess you could say, the incommunicable attributes of God in a, in yeah, a certain sense. Yeah, to some sense. sense right? yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the agent of creation, for example. Yeah, God, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and earth. Then we see in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and a number of places that say that Jesus is the creator, that God, at least he's the agent of creation, that through him all things were made and nothing has been made uh, that is made apart from him. And then it, it says in Mark 2 that he forgives sins, and in John 5 that he judges the world for sins. Yeah, who has the right to do that? You know, and, and um, so in, you know, in Mark, he healed a guy and and the oh he no he said he said your sins are forgiven and all the religious leaders said whoa what you can't do that only god can forgive sins and jesus said okay well what's easier uh for to forgive his sins or to or to just heal him of his par his par paralysis yeah. so he healed the guy and he walked off in other words jesus was saying look yeah i do have authority to forgive sins and i'll prove it i'll just heal the guy and then it's interesting in acts chapter 7 he receives prayer that's something that only god can do is receive prayer, yet right. Jesus receives prayer in Acts 7. Right, not the only example of that, but this is Stephen calling out, yeah. Jesus received my spirit. Um, yeah. And I guess kind of connected to that is he's worthy of worship. He receives right. prayer and he receives worship, right. things that are only for God, right? When when Paul was worshiped in Acts, he said, whoa! Whoa, don't, don't, don't worship me, yeah. Yeah, don't yeah. worship me, but Jesus never said that. Yeah, and even in Revelation 2, the John falls down before this angel. Like, I could see the point of that. The angel's probably super glorious and, like, blew him away. And he says, whoa, whoa, no, you know. Um, so, but Jesus received the worship, right. and so that's a, that's a good evidence. Okay, so let's talk about why this matters. Okay, so there, hopefully, again, people are going to probably have to rewind this and listen to this again, look at some of the scripture we're talking about. There's a lot to cover here. But why does it? Why why is the divinity of Jesus important? Why does it even matter to yeah, us? Yeah, a number of things. The first one is that we can we can actually have real knowledge of God. So God so God has revealed Himself in His Son. He's made Himself known in His Son. Hebrews chapter one verse one through two. In past times, God spoke to us through the prophets, and that was limited and partial. They you know here and there one generation or another. And it says, but in these latter days, 
he has spoken to us through his son. So God has fully revealed himself way more than through the prophets, so we can really know what he's like. And, and um, you know, so it's, it, it's possible to have real and visual knowledge of God through the person of Jesus. Yeah, we talked about this in week one in our series, that God revealed general revelation and special revelation, but this is the ultimate revelation, mm-hmm. self-revelation, and it's through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's also implications in terms of salvation, just like his humanity had something to do with his salva- with our abil- his ability to save us, and so does his divinity. Yeah, if he's human, he can represent us before God as our kind of, again, class action. But if he's, if he's only human then he can't make a sacrifice that's adequate to pay for our sins before God. God, the perfect just judge judge of the world. And so unless Jesus is fully God, then he cannot make the sufficient sacrifice, the infinite sacrifice. But because he is, then his death is sufficient. It's enough, and we can count on that. Yeah, that's good. All right, now, what about this idea that he bridges a gap between God and man? The, the fact that Jesus is divine, and also he's fully human, this allows us to bridge this gulf. Yeah, and the thing, I think the point that I would want to draw out of that is that it was, that it was God who bridged the gulf, that, that God sent, the Father sent the Son into our world. And so at God's initiative, it tells us something important about God, that he's the one who took initiative. He's the one, as we sometimes say, who's been pursuing us first. Mm -hmm. Right, because in the Old Testament, we had other mediators, you know, Moses and, and many of the other prophets. And even today, you might think... A lot of people go to church and think, well, the priest bridges the gulf right. for me. But that's not true. Jesus right. is the one who bridges the right. gulf for all of us. Because he's God. Because yeah. he's God. Yeah. All right, one last thing. Because of his deity, he deserves all of our worship and adoration and obedience because he's God. Because we right. owe it to God, so we owe it to Jesus. Right. Anything that we that is proper to give to God, the Father, is proper to give to Jesus. So we ought to worship him, and we certainly ought to obey him. He has that ultimate authority in our life. Before we move on to the offices of Jesus, talk a little bit, put a bow on this for us, Ross, about the two natures of, of Christ. Yeah, the Church has grappled with how these two natures interact with each other in the early centuries of Christian history. Um, they say that he's both human and divine, and so in, in kind of thinking that through, theologians have, have come to understand it better it's, we call it uh, the hypostatic union. Now, you'll probably never use those words, so I just threw them out there to, to show you that how intelligent I am. But um, <laughs> no, the hy- you might see the, that referred to from time to time in your reading. And hy- hypostatic means just in Greek for having to do with the nature, with your nature, the union of the two natures. So we're saying that he's not half divine and half human. He's not divine sometimes and human sometimes that his divine nature, it doesn't minimize his human nature or vice versa. We're saying that the the two natures are never divided. He's not two people. He's not a divine person and a human person kind of living in the same body. Um, But he shares those equally. Both of them have complete integrity. Um, They're united in one person without confusion, without any loss or change on either part. Um, and so it's important to just maybe hedge some around some possible ways to think wrongly about it, to say that to simply uh, one person, two natures, both completely 
true and completely real. Ross, what do you say to the person who listened to all this for these first 30 minutes and says, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I'm, I'm kind of freaked out about it because I don't know if I can be a Christian because I don't really, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the two natures, his humanity, his divinity. Yeah, I think, well, I get that. I understand that because we're talking about some infinite kind of things that, you know, our human minds are not infinite. And we have to be a little bit humble about that. But to me, I look at this and I go, this is the reason why I am a Christian, hmm. is because this person, Jesus, you know, he's, he's more than just a, a great teacher or moral, you know, kind of uh, giving moral sayings that, you know, look good on, um, you know, prints on the wall. Or, hmm. um, you know, he's more than just like an admirable historical character and saying that, that he actually claimed to be God and if if we take those claims seriously, then we go like, wow, either he is God or he's nuts, you know. Um, and so this these are reasons that have pushed me into affirming that that Jesus really is God and that I should follow him. I can follow him. And there's like we said in all the implications of these two natures, that there's a lot of things there that really make sense why I would want to follow him because he's fully human and because he's fully God. Either way, you know, I'm not sure that it works. Um, so I think that even though it's hard to understand, in another sense, it, it's really the only thing that really fits together in a way that, that works for us as human beings to be right with God. It's good. Okay, let's talk about the offices of Jesus. Ross, we have to address the word first, because that's kind of a theo- theological word. What do we mean when we say the offices of Jesus? Yeah, we're not talking about a physical place. Right. We're not talking about Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> um, when we talk about offices, we're talking simply about functions. Like, okay, so the office, we could use it like this analogy. We could say the office of the president mm. or the office of the mayor, right? That's a, that's a functional role. And so we're really talking about roles or functions of Jesus, that he has the authority to fulfill. Okay, and there are three of them. We're gonna we're gonna break each one of these down: prophet, priest, and king. Let's start with prophet. Yeah. So, in the ancient, in the Old Testament world, the role of the prophet was to reveal God to human beings, um, but Jesus fulfills that role in its entirety. Now, sometimes he functions like an Old Testament prophet. He has a message for humanity. He comes in the beginning of the gospel saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So he's looking just like an Old Testament prophet there in a lot of different ways. But again, uh, as we mentioned before, he's really the perfect prophet because he perfectly reveals the Father to us, not just in his words, but in his very being, um, as we talked about a moment ago. So he is the the ultimate um, way that God reveals himself to us. Yeah. So that's a prophet role. Right. It's not just foretelling the future. Right. right? A lot of it, people yeah. think that's what a prophet is. We're not talking about that per se. Yeah. Not that Jesus he couldn't did. do that. He did foretell yeah. the future yeah. a number right. of times about his second coming and so forth. But the point is, is that his, he has this role, this function of revealing God, mm-hmm. revealing God's heart and God's thoughts to us and God's person to us. Okay, so that's the prophet Jesus, but he's also Jesus was also priest, and in order to understand that, you kind of have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament Jewish system. Yeah, the, in a nutshell, the priests mediated the relationship between God and his people. They, they stood, you talked about a mediator earlier, and the, in the Old Testament, the priests stood between God and his, and his people to help usher the people into the presence of God. 
and so that they could be forgiven. And so they're offering sacrifices that covered over people's sins until the next time, right? And so uh, it was a function of helping people to, be, to approach God, to be reconciled to God, to be right with God. That's, you, that's the background. And you can read about that in Leviticus. If you're having a hard time s- sleeping one night, open up the Old Testament book of Leviticus and start reading it, because Leviticus is talking about the Levites, right, mm-hmm. the, which, were the, which was the tribe that was the priestly tribe. Exactly, and all their duties and all the ways that they did this, yeah. And yet Jesus did not come from the line of Levi. He came from the line of Judah, Yet Jesus was a priest, as the author in Hebrew says, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So it's like this order that precedes the Levitical priesthood, and it's saying that Jesus is, a, is even a greater high priest than, than what right. you think of with Aaron. Right. And, and the whole book of Hebrews is all about that, and it points out how you know, these priests, they, they were mortal. You know, they do their job until they died, and then someone else would take their place, and they'd, keep, you know, they'd do that until they died, and then... And, but, but it points out in Hebrews that Jesus is never, he's Im- immortal. He never died, never had to give his role to somebody else when he passed away. And, and that his work is, is final. He did it once, that was it. Didn't need a bunch more priests after that. And so he is really the, the perfect priest uh, that reconciles us completely and fully to God. And by the way, he's also to use the imagery from the Old Testament, he's also the Lamb of God. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a second. Yeah, which is a whole unique thing, that, yeah. that he was both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. All right, so that's priest, and then there's one more office. The, we, we see Jesus as king. What does it mean that Jesus is king for us? Yeah, again, it's related to the kings of Israel as being the sort of the standard, and they were given out authority to carry out God's will among his people on earth in a physical kingdom. And so, in fact, the early kings of Israel were seen as, um, hor- uh, as a harbinger or a, f- a foretelling of the ultimate king who would come. And so you have this, Jesus is sometimes called son of David, because uh, it was the prophets told David that God's going to raise up a descendant from your line who's going to be this ultimate greater eternal kind of king. And so that person, you know, to be called son of David was the implication of that. And, um, And so that future ruler, the Bible reveals that to be Jesus. There's not another one coming later who, who takes over the kingship from him. And it's not just related to the idea of Israel in the Old Testament and the line of David and Solomon. Of course, Jesus is in that lineage. We read that in in the Gospels when you first open up Matthew. You see the lineage of Jesus. We're tracing the kingship down through to Jesus. But it also relates then, Ross, to the church, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like the new Israel. Yeah, so so, um, yeah, Jesus is the ruler over the church. He's the head of the church, it says in Colossians. And so he's, uh, you know, this, this is where we, the title Lord comes from. We're saying that you have authority, that you rule um, uh, over, the whole, over the church of all God's people, you know, through time. But it even goes a step beyond that, mm-hmm. right? Because one day uh, Jesus will rule universally over all creation, and he'll be the only, the only king. Oh, every knee will bow, it says. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord or that he's king in a sense. Okay, so we've talked about Jesus' nature, 
that he's fully human, that he's fully divine. We've talked about his offices. Let's let's talk about two more things as we drill down on what Jesus actually did. They're really important to the gospel Mm -hmm. message. They're important to the church. I think it's important for us to cover this if we want to be systematic about Jesus. First is his resurrection, the Mm -hmm. resurrection of Jesus. Right. All four gospels describe that in some detail. We know that it's important because of the space that it gets in Scripture. And, and you know, throughout the whole New Testament, it's, you know, it's run up the flagpole pretty significantly, and it's the heart of the early church's message. If you look, read the book of Acts, they're proclaiming that this Jesus, whom you killed, has been raised from the dead. They keep saying that over and over again. And so, so number one, it happened, and number two, it has incredible significance. The fact that it happened... Is, is quite amazing. But what does it mean? You know, we're talking about Jesus died, he rose again from the dead, and so I think it's helpful to explore, you know, what actually happened and what that was like. Now, the Bible says that it was a bodily resurrection, so let's drill down on that. Was G- is Jesus's resurrection body the same as his body before he went to the cross? Yes and no. Okay, so <laughs> that's a good theologian, theologian's answer, right? Um, yeah, it, it was, first of all, it was physical. So it was, it was the same in the sense that it's a physical body of, of material, you know, flesh, bones, and all the rest. It's not merely a spirit that's really clear in Jesus' interactions with his disciples after he rose from the dead, that it's not just an apparition or some kind of a, you know, sp- a ghost or something like that, not just a spirit, but it's physical, um, and in, in some ways, it's similar to the earthly body. He was recognizable. People, you know, um, he, he had the power to hide people from recognizing mm-hmm. him. But typically, well, once as soon as they realized, oh, it was Jesus, it was clearly him. Mm-hmm. Um, people knew it was him. Um, you know, he did physical things. He ate food, actually. And I don't know if he needs to eat food. I doubt if he needs to eat food because his body's not mortal. But he had the capacity to eat food. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he breathed. At one time, he says he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he had functioning lungs, and, um, and he talked, and he interacted with people, you know. So that, that was through his physical body, he spoke, he listened, yeah. and all the functions and factors of a, of a f- normal physical body. So it was, there was, I would say there's a continuity, at least, between his original mortal body and his resurrected immortal body. Okay, so then how was his resurrected body different than his pre-cross body. Yeah, the one thing is what I just mentioned, that is that it was immortal, immortal. So there's something supernatural, something glorified about it, something transformed about Jesus' uh, resurrection body. Um, I mean, and so you have a couple points of data. You have the Gospels, and you see Jesus showing up in a, in a room where the door was closed. You know, boom, he just shows up. Like, how did, how did that happen? Like, I can't do that with my body. I have to open the door, yeah. you know? Um, we don't know all the implications of what that might mean about the nature of his body, but we know it's different. He's a, a, able to appear and disappear from people, people's sight. We also know something about it from the rest of the New Testament, because especially in the book, book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that our resurrection bodies as Christ followers are going to be like his. He's the first fruits. And so if we look at how he describes the resurrection of believers, then we extrapolate backwards. We see, oh, well, that must be the way that Jesus' resurrection is. 
And so we see, see things like the fact that it is no longer subject to death. It is no longer subject to weakness. Um, that, you know, it's, it's glorified in some way. You see this picture in Revelation chapter 1 of the resurrected Jesus appears to John, and it's like, like it blows the, the doors off in terms of like, like light shining. It's, he's depicted as uh, just glorious and amazing and, and like beyond, you know, almost beyond um, human experience. But but recognizable as well, like yeah. you said. So that 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 was always helpful for me when people say, "Well, we know each other in heaven." I'd say, well, "I think so," because the disciples knew Jesus; yeah. they recognized his resurrected body. So so I think there is going to be some, like you said, some continuity for us, which is encouraging. Ross, why why aside from aside from that part, why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why was it so important to the early disciples and so important to the Christian message today? Yeah, there, there's a number. That's a great great point to make. There's a number of, of reasons for that. Um, well, I think one of the most obvious number one reasons is it shows that Jesus is totally unique. This is nobody else in Buddha, Muhammad, anybody else who ever started a religion or was recognized as a religious leader, nobody else makes that claim. Nobody else could make that claim, and nobody even tries mm. you know, to say that they, were, they died and they rose from the dead. This sets Jesus apart as completely unique among all other religious leaders. But it also establishes his identity. So Romans chapter 1 says that, God, that he's the, both the son of David, but he's also the son of God. So he's got the human side, and the divine side. So Romans 1 says the resurrection of Jesus, God raised him with power from the dead, and that validates all of his claims as the son of David, and it validates all of his claims as the son of God, because um, you don't just make, you know, that just doesn't happen to any old body. And it validated it for the disciples, because most of the disciples fled at his his death, but they, they ended up they ended up dying for him, living for him, and dying for him. Yeah, when yeah. they the fact that he that the fact that they saw him alive completely changed their whole mental framework, their whole approach to the, everything that they learned and experienced, and then and so the apostle Paul kind of capsulizes that again in First Corinthians fifteen, where he says, "Look, if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, there's really no salvation." He said, "You're not going to rise if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Neither are you." Um, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he said, then we're all just blowing smoke. And he said, we're all just a bunch of fools to be proclaiming this message and uh, that we really don't have any hope. And so it's at really at the heart of all of our hope because it means that Jesus is still alive. He's still at work today. He, that, that God said yes to the cross and the, uh, the crucifixion and all that it accomplished. The resurrection is God's way of saying, yeah, that was real, that worked, and it, it did everything it was supposed to do. And so the resurrection really is very key. Okay, so we could probably talk for days about Jesus, because the whole Bible's about Jesus, our faith is all about Jesus. It really deserves more than just one episode. But let's finish with his ascension. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. the ascension of Jesus. What happened between the resurrection of Jesus and then later on in Acts 1, we read about the ascension of Jesus. Yeah. What happened there? Yeah, I'll get, let me just mention, uh, before we go into that, uh, to give our listeners a preview, 
that we are going to talk more about Jesus in Module 3, because we'll talk about actually the work of the Atonement. Right. So you can see we haven't got to that. We've been, we're talking about his, we've touched on it because right. of his priestly ministry and so forth, but we're going to look in much greater detail about the work of Atonement, what it accomplished, and how God used that. So we're coming back to the work of Jesus and drilling down in that particular aspect, you know, and it's, I think it's uh, probably um, topic number seven, seven and eight. But the ascension is often neglected. People don't think about it much. Um, but it, it has some important implications that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent like 40 days with his disciples, and he's teaching them and interacting with them, preparing them, I think, for, for what lies ahead. Um, but it says that, that finally he was taken up into heaven. It uses the word taken up. In Luke and in Acts, it says he like physically rose from the ground and kept going up, 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 up until he they could into the clouds till they could no longer see him, and so um, that demonstrates a number of things. Number one, that Jesus' work on earth was done, that it was good. He finished it all, and um, and now he's handing the baton in a sense to his church, mm. saying, "You're going to take the next step and tell the world about." about who I am and what I've done. So it also says in Scripture that he's seated at God's right hand. Okay, let's talk about what, what does that mean and what is he doing? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a figurative um, phrase that refers to the position of greatest authority and greatest honor. And so if you were the physical king of Persia or... Babylon or whatever, then the person sitting at your right hand might be your prince, your son, the heir of the throne. It would be your number one advisor. It would be the seat of you know the greatest um, authority and honor, you know, along with you as the king. And so to to use that word picture, just sim- simply means that Jesus now risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, now occupies this place of high honor and authority um, above everything else in the world. And Hebrews 7 says that what one of the things he does from that place of authority is that he intercedes for us. Mm-hmm. What does that mean that Jesus is in? Does that mean he prays for us? Yeah, that's bir- virtually what that word means. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a, a 10-cent word, I guess, or a 20-cent word. But um, it's the Bible talks about that intercessory ministry of Jesus. So it goes back to his... to the office of Jesus as priest. So his priestly office was completed in one hand when he offers a perfect sacrifice, but his priestly office continues in a different sense, that, um, as, that Jesus is, I believe he's, what that means that he intercedes, he's continuously presenting his righteousness to the Father on our behalf. That, I mean, I can imagine, you can imagine scenarios, and these aren't, these aren't authoritative, but sometimes when I think about it, I imagine a scenario when I blow it and I, I sin, I go my own way instead of God's way, and there's Jesus saying, I got this, you know. Mm-hmm. He's, saying, he's saying to God, hey, remember God, you don't have to like nuke him with a, a lightning bolt or whatever because I paid for that sin. It's all good, and I covered it. So, the, so he's acting as the priest, again, in the sense of um, our relationship, our reconciliation with God, not just on the one-time basis, but on an ongoing basis throughout our whole Christian experience. 
Okay, one last question about the ascension. What does that have to do with his the return of Jesus, the future return of Jesus? Yeah, what that's interesting because there was two. There was angels that they're watching, you know, kind of that, that accompanied Jesus up. And, and as the disciples watch him ascend into heaven, the angel said, "Guys, what are you doing staring into space? Um, don't you know that Jesus is going to return the same way he left?" And so the angels, the angel connected the dots. God's messenger connected the dots for them to say, "Jesus, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he really started the clock on his the countdown to his return." Jesus is coming back again. When he comes back again, he's going to be like the way he left. So I, I, I understand that to mean that he left in his resurrected body. He's going to come back in his resurrected body. He left by ascending into the clouds, and other parts of Scripture do tell us that he's going to come by descending from the clouds, in a sense. I mean, in a very real sense. People will be able to see him. It won't be mysterious and secret. It'll be the same Jesus, the real Jesus, um, who comes back. Um, the same way he left. All right, so that's everything you need to know about the person and work of Jesus. If you want to learn more about this or if you want to talk about it with your family, your small group, or your mentor, or a Bible study class, this is lesson number four in our systematic theology series at PursueGod.org forward slash SysTheo. And make sure to join us next week for lesson number five where we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit.